do me a favor and turn over to 1 Corinthians. That's where we're headed. Uh, I think what we're going to do is, um, because we've been all the way through the New Testament, we started back up with Colossians. That was a letter from Paul. That dealt with legalism and Gnosticism and the dead effects of following an external religion. That's what Colossians was. It was a letter of Paul. We're going to do another letter, or actually two, I guess, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. That's going to take us a while. I hope it has a greater impact than the young lady who asked me what we just finished when we got done with Luke over one year. And she said, well, well anyway. But anyway, uh, anyway, I hope it has a greater impact than that. But 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians uh, is what we're going to do. And then we're going to head back to a gospel. Uh, a gospel. So we'll probably do... Uh, well, anyway, I don't know which gospel, but uh, so that's where we're headed. If you want to know, but we're we're going to uh, now come into First Corinthians. As I mentioned, this is a letter from Paul. You'll see that here in a minute, and uh, it's not fighting the dead works necessarily of external religion. What it's fi- uh, fighting really is the defilement of the world world on the church. You understand, right, that we're called out, we're separated from the world. In fact, in a famous verse in 1 John 2, verse 15, don't love the world, John said, or the things in the world. He goes so far as to say this, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Oh boy. You're like, wow, that's pretty significant. So that's what this book is about in a nutshell. It's about the defilement of the world on the church now. So this book is, these two books, it's like uh, the most significant look into the life of the church as it existed 20 to 30 years after Jesus rose again and ascended to heaven, right? Uh, it, it, it is that look into the church. You're going to get a look at church life. Oh boy, what a look. We're going to deal with things like lawsuits. We're going to deal with some shocking sexual immorality. I guess it's not so shocking anymore, right? You can watch it all day, every day, right on your own TV at home. But within the church, you're going to uh, find divisions over doctrinal issues. I mean, that never happens in the Christian church, really. Just try to baptize somebody one time and see if there's division. (laughs) You don't do it this way? You do it that way? Okay. Well, there's a lot of issues. There's uh, 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 inappropriate teaching about the resurrection of Christ. And on and on you go. You'll see it as we go. It just takes the lid off here. You're going to look into the life of the church. Think about it. Only 25 or so years, 30 years post-Jesus, and already the world's infiltrated. So let me read this a little bit down here. I'm going to read to verse 17, and then we're going to jump in. Ah, Paul here, the word of the Lord, Paul. See, even I know it was written by Paul. 
called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, <clears throat> to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Is in your, raise your hand if in your Bible, to be is italicized. Raise your hand. Yeah, it's in mine. With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift." eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Good old church fights. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Hmm, interesting. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So pray with me, would you please? Lord, thanks so much uh, for this morning and for the people here who are here to dig into your word. And we pray by your spirit you would lead us into all truth. All truth, Lord. Lord, this is a somewhat difficult book. I pray that you would help us examine ourselves and not be uh, fooling ourselves about what our Christian life looks like, even if it's painful, Lord. Help us to live that you want us to live by the resources you want us to live by. (laughs) And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Well, it is. It's written by Paul. If you're new to the Bible, this is the one who was a former religious man who was very religious, the zealous Jewish person who adhered to the Jewish law perfectly, he said. There was nobody uh, better than him at uh, practicing the law, practicing a legal lifestyle or a law lifestyle according to the law that God handed down to the Jews. But he was marching one day in search of Christians to kill. Can you imagine the irony here? Christians to kill and to put a hit on. And he heard from the Lord, and the Lord called him out. And you know the story. You can look it up in the book of Acts. Paul's life, who used to be Saul, Saul's life was changed forever. 
when he came face to face or ear to ear, however you want to say it, with the question, who am I, Jesus poses to him and to us. We must individually ask and answer for our own selves when we're confronted with Jesus who he is to us. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and that will never change. But you must surrender to that. A lot of people intellectually know that, but don't surrender their whole life to it. In fact, I would say some of the greatest doctrinal beings are the demonic angels and Satan himself. He knows the word. They know the word. They know it lock, stock, and barrel. They could tell you all of the theology, and yet they're not followers of Jesus. They've put their pride above him. So there is this place where we can know a lot of Scripture, and yet not have it have any impact in our lives. Isn't that interesting? And the Bible never calls us to that. We are going to examine that here in the book of Corinthians. You're not just saved from your sin by the cross of Christ. I want you to get this right at the beginning. You're saved from the power of sin, sanctification. Do you get that? See, we have a lot of people in the Christian church that want the salvation, but don't really care about nor pursue sanctification, being set apart more and more for the Lord. For those who are in Christ, and Christ is in them, this, I will abide in you, and you will abide in me. You now have the Spirit of God in your life, and one of the marks of the Spirit of God is that you are going to want to pursue holiness. You do have his righteousness. You're justified, declared not guilty, and have positionally, of course, the righteousness of Christ. But the Bible says that we're to pursue holiness, without which we won't see the Lord. So there is this pursuit of God, right? Good name for a book. Oh, it's already been taken. But anyway, why am I saying this? One word, Paul. When Paul gave his life over to the Lord, everything was up for grabs or was fair game for the Lord to get rid of or to add to. Wealth and power, pursuit of those things just in and of themselves, gone. Here's this high-educated, big-time powerful guy in the social and economic circles of Israel. The Lord confronts him and he says, I want you to come and live according to what I have for you. Are you willing? Yes, sir, I'll go anywhere you send me, and he does. He goes all throughout the ancient world, preaching and teaching and discipling and setting up churches. So that, why? Why ultimately? So that more people will come into heaven. You see, and Americans are worried about sales and image and bonuses. And those things are okay if we're glorifying the Lord, but oftentimes they become our idols, and even we fool ourselves. We say, well, we go to church, and we serve there for the soup kitchen and all that sort of thing. But see, Paul was willing to do anything or go anywhere at any time 
because he knew how valuable, how perfect, how wonderful he had come into contact with Jesus. And Jesus came into his life and it changed everything. That's Paul. See, he was called to be an apostle. You see, weren't there 12 apostles? Yeah, there were 12 apostles. This just means he was a messenger and he witnessed Jesus and his resurrection. So in one sense, we're apostles, although I don't mean it in any weird way, like there's apostles for today. I mean, we're messengers. And you're called to be a messenger. And he was called to be a messenger of Jesus Christ. And how it was through the will of God. Never forget that, folks. If you are a have come into a dynamic, vital relationship with the Lord. It's through the will of God. It's God's will for your life. And God's will is perfect. And it's pleasing. It's good. How could we complain when God puts us in a place? It's his will. Through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, this is a very interesting story. See, you won't really know <clears throat> 1 Corinthians unless you know Acts 18. It's Paul on his second missionary journey, you see. He heads over and goes to uh, this place. Some of you would love very much to... Um, vacation there. It's called Greece. By the way, just for your learning, Macedonia, when you see it on the maps, I'm going to have uh, Gabe, if he can, put up the map right here. Look, we're getting so high tech, it's unbelievable. <laughs> oh yeah, look at that. Macedonia, which is, you see where it says Corinth? Right up above there, really, is uh, right, right up above of the T, that's Upper Cor or, uh, Greece. Upper Greece is Macedonia. And I just want you to notice, look over here where Jerusalem is. Can you imagine how he had to get to Corinth? And you know the story. But in Acts 18, we get the story. He departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Do we also have a second map that shows Corinth? Yeah, there we go. He departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And I want you to see that little isthmus. See, I'm, I can't even believe I knew that word. But you see that little land bridge? And you see the two... Oh, wow. This is amazing. And you see these little ports? Well, see, that's really important for the story. And here's why it's important for the story. During the time of Paul, by the way, in around... Um, anyway, during the time of Paul... In the 50s A.D., in the 50s A.D., people didn't want to go all the way around the Cape to go to Italy. Italy was big and important. It contained Rome, right? And they didn't want to go around the Cape. Maybe you could back out. Yeah, they didn't want to come all the way around here. Rome's way up there to the left, okay? And so what they did was they found this little isthmus, this little four to five mile wide place. And what they would do, very interesting, they had this really sophisticated rolling system where people would either come in this uh, body of water or that body of water, and they had these rollers. They'd put the ship kind of like a dry dock, and they would roll the ship four miles across, put the ship back in and go. It saved them from going all the way around the Cape, which is one of the most dangerous Cape 
according to extra-biblical sources in antiquity. Now, why am I telling you that? Some of you are glazed over, like, shut up about the history, man. Well, you see, it's important for the history because when people were going north to south, they would have to come through Corinth. You get it? North to south. And when they were going east to west, they'd also have to come through Corinth. So Corinth became this place, this international hub of trade and commerce. It came the place where beautiful things from all around the world were housed and sold, or marketed and sold, excuse me. Uh, So it had that, and it had uh, lots of people who worked on ships or around ships, and they tend to be guys at the time who weren't following the Lord, folks. And you can imagine in all the different ways that it exhibited itself inside the cities. In fact, there are some sources from the dramas and the plays of the day where they would make fun of the drunkard in the play, the one who was drunk and sexually immoral, or immoral in the plays. They have these documents that show it, or the, the playbills, that say, what are you, a Corinthian? To like make fun of him. It became a name that you would make fun of people through drinking and debauchery. You get it? This is the kind of place we're dealing with. International trade, very cosmopolitan according to the riches of the world or the ideas of the world, uh, very immoral. And to top it all off, it was very, um, uh, they, they followed other gods. You know the Greeks, right? They had all these kinds of gods. You have seen them all, right? Zeus and Apollo and all those sorts of things. And they had temples all over the place. In Corinth, they had a hill, a hill right up over the isthmus, right near there, right near the four-mile stretch of land in which stood the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And one of the ways that people would worship the goddess of love and worship in that temple is every evening they had 1,000 female priestesses who would come down the hill into the city and they would prostitute themselves as an act of worship to Aphrodite. That's what was going on here, plus several other gods that they worshipped inside the city. In Corinth, in about 146 B.C., this is kind of interesting, the Romans wiped out the, seas, uh, the, the city, so before the New Testament, they wiped out the city, but in 46 B.C., Julius Caesar had this city rebuilt, and some of the Caesars who were done being the Caesar, (laughs) would then take up residence here. Now remember, they're Romans, they're living in Greece, and this city became the capital of the Roman province of however you say that word with an A. So Rome dominated the modern or the ancient world, and That was the capital city. You see everything. So there was politics here. And one of the things that they stressed, Greeks and Romans stressed, was philosophy. There was a premium on oratory and flowery speech and how how cutting you could be in your oratory and how, how, how you could argue things. And they would often be out in the marketplaces doing these sorts of things. They're also was a great Jewish population, even here in Greece. And so you have all of this happening, 
Paul is called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, you have to know chapter 18. I wanted to tell you about Sosthenes, but I took you all the way to Corinth. But that's because at the end of this chapter, or in the middle of this chapter, look at this in verse 5. Silas and Timothy came down from upper Greece, Macedonia, and Paul testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him, they took his garments and said to him, your blood be, or he took his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean from now on. I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles. You see this? This is happening in Corinth. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice who worshiped God. Isn't this, this to me is funny. I don't know. I find humor in the Bible, which was right next door to the synagogue. God set up, he, you won't listen? Okay. He gave him a house right beside the synagogue with justice. Then Crispus, listen to this, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. you imagine how mad the Jews must have been? And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. But apparently not many of them were baptized by Paul, right? Because we read that baptized by somebody else. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Don't be afraid, but speak and don't keep silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to, uh, to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And listen, Paul continued there for 18 months, a year and a half, a year and six months, teaching the word of God. Now here, look at this. When Galileo was pro of Achaia, see, half the battle of reading the Bible is just figuring out who the players are. That's a Roman governor who's been stationed up, oh, it went away, but that's okay, in Achaia, or however you say it. He was the Roman governor, kind of like Pontius Pilate, but in a different area. You get it? <clears throat> when he was there, the Jews rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat of the Romans, catch it, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names in your own law, look to it into it yourselves. I don't want to be a judge of this, such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Now watch, watch this. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. All the Greeks took Sosthenes, but Gallio took no notice of these things. Are you catching it? You just need to know who the players are, and you'll get so much more out of the Bible. So apparently, Sosthenes replaced Crispus as some sort of leader of the synagogue. And because... Sosthenes, look at this, most people believe Sosthenes was the one who took Paul to the judgment seat and said, look at what he's saying about us. You understand? Sosthenes was in opposition to Paul. Maybe. Some commentators don't believe it, but it appears so. Why am I making such a big deal of that? Because in the interim between that time in Acts 18 and the time Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians, he writes it from Ephesus in about the mid-55, uh, 56, 57 AD. Listen to this. Sosthenes becomes a brother. Are you kidding me? Here he was, beaten, 
Because he opposed Paul and the Romans. And here now, Sosthenes is one who's come in as a child of God, born again, filled with the Spirit. Something happened in the way, look at this, that the Christians loved and conducted themselves even in strife. That Sosthenes looked at, he even got a beating for it, and he looked at him. And he wanted to know somehow. And they came and they shared with him. And then he gave his life and, oh, they welcomed him in. Isn't that beautiful? See, that's Christianity, man. What you're going to find out as we move through this book is that the answer to life's problems, I want you to think, just think in your mind. Go right to the top of your problem. What is it? Sexual immorality? What is it? Relationship? What is it? Uh, career, it's all answered. Just keep going. It's all answered at the cross of Jesus Christ. It tells you that in this chapter. Here, Sosthenes becomes a brother to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Isn't that interesting? See, he's speaking on unity here, folks. He doesn't say to the the Corinthian church. I think that's important. It's not Calvary Chapel, and we're the end-all and the be-all, man. We're just part of the bigger body of Christ, the universal body of Jesus Christ. We just happen to have a local little body called Calvary Chapel, South Pittsburgh. You get it? It's the church. It's God's church that is important, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, catch this. He's got some really tough things to say. I mean, you got people having sex with inside the families here, folks. You got brothers suing brothers or sisters suing sisters. He's got some really tough things to say, and I could keep going on and on and on and on here. There's the filth and evil of Corinth has rubbed off in the church. I got to tell you, if I was writing this letter, Man, I might come out with guns blazing. Like, what, like things like, what are you doing? I can't trust you for one year. <laughs> Five minutes. Anybody else with me? Look what he does. It's important. Now, he is following the way in which ancients wrote letters, but I want you to catch this. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ. I want you to think about that. There are these massive, awful problems. And he's reminding them right out of the gate, instead of correcting the problem, actually he is correcting the problem, but the way in which we do it, he doesn't do He reminds them of who they are in Christ and what does sanctified mean. To the church which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified. Well, that means set apart from the world. You're, you're now different from the world. You're sanctified. You're set apart. It has the idea of like if you were going to use a special cup for communion or something, you know, you wouldn't take it down to the local pub and, you know, pass it around sort of thing. And so it's set apart for that purpose and it's made clean and right and washed up and spit polished and all that. Maybe not spit polished. That's probably not the COVID thing to say, but... <clears throat> 
But, but you get it, right? And that's the idea here. You're, you're sanctified, you're, but you're set apart for a purpose. Do you get this? That's what sanctified means. It just doesn't mean you're set apart. You're set apart for a purpose, and that purpose is to let the Lord's life in and through you and to live it out and to glorify God, you see. See, what he's saying is you have all these divisions that are petty and dumb, and a lot of them are evil and unwholesome, and you don't even remember who you are, but he says it way nicer. You're not remembering who you are. You're set apart. You're washed clean for a purpose. And the purpose is not your pleasure. It's the glory of God in and through you. Can you believe he picked us? Come on, folks. He set you apart in Christ Jesus. And he's called. See, mine has to be saints. Some translations just say called saints. And in fact, the Greek is probably better rendered that way. You're just called saints. Folks, you're a saint. If, the blood of Christ, if you've trusted in the blood of Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you are a saint. You don't have to go through some process and do some miracle and be dead for 80 years or 1,000 years or whatever it is you do, and there doesn't have to be things that are relics towards you or anything like that. You are a saint right now. Because it just means that you've been set apart for his glory and you're rowing in the same direction that God wants you to row as one of his kids. Isn't that beautiful? And you're a saint. You're a saint with all. Do you see that? Oh, man, the church down the street, street preaching the gospel. Spill, or, I can't speak today. Filled with the Spirit. There are saints, brothers and sisters. Oh, well, they wear ties and, you know, they dress up. And they just sing a cappella. Wonderful! The Lord's impressed upon them to do it that way. Praise the Lord. We love them. They're our brothers and sisters. They're different than us. Well, that doesn't matter. You're called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Both theirs and ours. You see how he's trying to bring unity Jesus is both theirs and ours. That should just say something to you and to me. Do you see how God individually loves us? It's not like, you know, I used to think about it, that God so loved the world and gave his own begotten son, and you'd say it, and you go, well, God loves the world like a big blob. He just kind of throws his love out onto the world. That's okay. Yeah, but that's not what it means. What he means is he loves you. And he loves you, individually and personally. He's both theirs and ours. He's our Lord and Savior. He's your Lord and Savior. He loves you. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here, I want you to see something. Grace and peace is what the church needs, the individual people in the church needs as the resource to be the church. You say, what do you mean? Well, this is fascinating. Paul used in verse 2 there a word called ecclesia. Ecclesia. And that word for the church, ecclesia, means a called, listen, listen to this, a called out civic authority to come and dis- discuss the most important pressing matters 
And to proclaim those matters and to rule on those matters and to distribute those thoughts and ideas that come as the meeting in the civic world for the, you know, for the secular city. He uses ecclesia. It's a secular word, but then he tags on of God. And you're like, why are you getting so excited about that? Because he's called us out to speak the things of God, and he uses the ecclesia. We're to come out as a called people, not to stay in the walls, but to go out there and to speak the things and to share the edicts of God with the people of the city. In other words, does West Elizabeth... Southwestern PA, do they even know we're here and have we had any sort of impact in this area that God has planted us? See, each individual church is doing that as the bigger body of church (laughs) incorporated into the bigger body of church, and we all have our little places that we go and share the gospel. See, it's a vital relationship. We're called out. You get this, right? He said, don't forsake assembling together. That's in Hebrews. But at this time, they didn't have a building like this. You know this? They're going from houses to houses. Maybe they could only fit 10 in this house or 40 in that place and 5 here and 3 there and 60 there. But that's how they met. They didn't meet in a big, massive auditorium. They met in the places that they could meet, and they're called out, and I'm excited about that because we're called out. We're the ecclesia. We're to go out. We're to praise the Lord and go out, and he says, I want to give you grace and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God doesn't just pat you on the head, come in here and say, okay, go on out and do my work. Have a nice time. He gives you the grace to do that. Now, I love definitions of grace. Come on, Gabe. Let's do it again. So I put this up here for you. Now, I typed this, so if there's a funny word, it's my fault. Listen to what Alan Redpath says about a called-out church and, and the grace of God. If I ask you to define the word grace, perhaps you would say it's the undeserved, everybody says this, loving kindness of God, which has met us in our sin and need. Yes, grace is that, but it's far more than that. It comes, as Paul says here, from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father is the source, and Jesus Christ is the channel through whom it comes. Grace, therefore, is his life of purity and wholeness, his death that was sufficient to pay the price for your sins, and his present ministry, this is important, by which he imparts the Holy Spirit today, enabling us to die to sin and live in his power. You get it? You understand why a church that was having problems with defilement would need the grace of God? Keep going. It seems to me that grace in the New Testament, isn't this beautiful, is that which brings into our lives Everything that delights the heart of God, oh my. Have you ever thought of grace that way? Bringing into our lives everything that delights the heart of God. There is grace to make me like the master. 
Grace to give us triumph when otherwise we would fail. Grace to make us patient where I would be impatient. Oh boy. Grace to enable us to glorify the Lord Jesus in every situation. Are you concerned about pleasing God today? Let me, that's Alan Redpath, remind you that he has already placed within you that possibility. Here it comes. His life, his character, his spirit. That's grace. Don't just blow by grace. I don't want to just blow by grace when God's given you the resource. You see, grace is a person, folks. It's not some mysterious force that he, I think sometimes we think, oh yeah, like the Holy Spirit imparts it to us, like gets it into our body and now it's like magical and we mix it up like a snow globe and now we're good. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ that's powerful in our lives. You see this? It enables us to delight the heart of God. And also we get peace. When we know grace, we know peace. Of course, we have peace with God first. We talked about that last book. But peace with God by the blood of Christ enables us then, Philippians tells us, to have the peace of God. And now with that, see, you start to travel the world and make an impact, Corinth, in a place that looks, here, I know this isn't a word, but I'm going to say it anyway, to make an impact in a word that looks unimpactable. <laughs> you can't penetrate it. How, how could we? It's overwhelming, Lord, the evil in this city. You ever turn on the news and go, it's overwhelming, Lord, the evil in this country. What have we come to? Here it is. It's as if Paul is writing to Corinth, of course, from Ephesus, but it's as if he's writing to us today in just this little body in this little speck of the world, and saying, here's how to impact your culture. So he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. And here it comes, that you were enriched in everything by him. Remember in Colossians, <laughs> do, you, do you remember this? In the second chapter of Colossians, I always want us to remember this. I'm going to turn you there in second or excuse me Colossians 2 and in chapter 10 you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power you're complete in Jesus Christ know that now when you go back there it says he's enriched you in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge he's given you gifts by the way the word for grace is Charis, from which we get the word charismatic. You scared of charismatic? Well, don't be. It's the word of grace. <laughs> Hopefully you're not scared of it. It's the word of grace. It's the words of grace. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him. You're complete. He'll even give you gifts. We're going to talk about that in chapters uh, 12 through 14. He's going to give you gifts. He'll give you, he has everything, the Bible says, for life and godliness. Everything. In Christ is everything for life and godliness. He says to you, Christian, that you can be partakers of the divine nature. You have all the resources. He's enriched in everything by him. Can you imagine Paul writing this? Think about it. We, we just said Everything humanly or secular was gone from him. The power and the prestige and maybe the money, I'm sure the money, 
and the comfort. His life was luxurious. The rug is swept up from underneath him, and he can say, can you believe this? I, we, us are enriched in everything. His life now is rich when before it was poor. Be honest with yourself. Are there idols in your life? Is there an idol in my life? God is calling us to get those swept out and to be filled with his Holy Spirit. And we're enriched in everything, in all utterance and all knowledge. What does that mean? We can start to discern and understand the things of God. Oh, his ways are too high for us. I understand that. But we start to be able to rightly divide the word. People can come to us with questions, and we don't have to say, hmm, I don't know. If you, do, don't, if you don't know, do say that and get back to them. But now you start to, you're able to work with God's word and you can answer people for the hope that lies within you. You can utter things and you have knowledge in the good way even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. You know that you know that it's true. Remember the Holy Spirit? How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? I mean, isn't it beautiful? I, I, I would write something like, you know you have the Holy Spirit. And I'd write maybe a four-point bullet outline about the technique. God just says, listen, if you hear and can say, Abba, Daddy, if you know he's your dad, the Holy Spirit's there. It was confirmed in you that way so that you came short and no gift Eagerly what? Waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's true. We do. I mean, our right, folks? Even though I've said what I've said, yes, we watch the news, and I know what we say. Lord, come quickly, please. And yet there's this part of us that says, but Lord, while you're tearing, while you don't come, help us to lay it all down our whole lives so that more people could come into the kingdom. Lead us and guide us to people that we can help, Lord, that we can share with, who will also confirm to you the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is coming back, and he's coming to judge. And the Bible tells us that for those in Christ, we'll be blameless or present faultless before the throne. We'll have entry into heaven or eternal life. Because of the blood of Christ, thank goodness, it's because of Jesus and not us. Here's why. Because if it was us, you see, you'd start to have divisions. Well, you know, our way really is better. We're certainly going to have a higher place in heaven or more rewards or whatever. We're going to be closer to the Lord at the table because, I mean, we do it the right way. And quite frankly, you guys down the street, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) You dress up and you shouldn't dress up. We don't dress up and you should not dress up. Well, if you want to dress up, put on a tie. No one cares. Praise the Lord if you want to dress up. You sing hymns out of the book. Well, I know, but I know a lot of people who sing hymns with a dead heart. You sing, you know, contemporary worship. Well, yeah, but if it was with a full heart, Come on now. What are we getting into? See, if if it wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ who presents us blameless, we'd compete and say we're doing it great. 
because we wanted to be better than others. That's the way of a person that's carnal and not spirit-filled. In verse 9, it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. I don't think you get that. I don't think I get this daily. This, this is so astounding. It, it's like God saying there, you, you have, and I don't want to be blasphemous here, it's almost as if God is saying through the Holy Spirit, you have a partnership with Jesus. Now, what do you do when you have a partnership? Like, if I went into partnership with Xander in a construction company, guess what Xander would do? He'd do all the building. He'd have all the tools. I have none. I don't know how to build. I can't even turn my car on hardly. But I would look over the contracts, and I would help him with that, and I would help him to get the business and make sure it was legal and set up the corporate entity. I can't build, but I'd help. And, and we, hopefully, the Lord would bless him. But listen to this. Listen to this. All that Xander's is mine, and all that's mine is Xander's if we went into a partnership in building. You, you get it? Now, now, bring it back here. Everything, we have everything in common now. We, we have a mutual understanding. We have a coming together. Everything that Jesus has is available to us. And we don't really have that much. But everything we have, we offer up to Jesus, which is basically our life. That's what that is saying, folks. See, see when you see it that way... And you understand the church down the street or that pastor or this pastor is preaching the gospel. They share in the fellowship of Jesus too. It's hard to have divisions. And that's what Paul's getting at. Why? Because I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions. That word is schismata. It means a tear in the garment. You know, like a... When we first started here, I had a pair of jeans, and it had a hole, like, right here, and it was little. And she would say, man, you got you to gotta quit wearing those. And one day, before I got up here, early on here, that thing just went, Rrrp. and it was really embarrassing. And she's like, what are you doing? Other, that's the word here. It's a garment that's ugly. It's been ripped that's what it means. And he's saying these things are so ugly and people can see. There's these divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together. That's a medical term. It's the medical term for setting a bone or putting something back together so it'll heal. Get it? It's perfectly joined in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, this is fascinating. I'm going to stop right here, and I'm going to take a little rabbit trail. You're like, oh, man, don't do that. But I'm going to do it just for your learning. See, this is not Paul sitting down to write a treatise about church life. God's using it for that. What this is, is Paul is responding to people 
in a church that he loves immensely. He spent 18 months there teaching. He's moved on to Ephesus, the greatest, some say, work of his life. He's been there for several years. And guess what keeps happening? There keep being these problems that he's hearing about. Are you getting it? You know the difference between low maintenance and high maintenance? Anybody here high maintenance? No, don't answer that. I'm joking. You ever been around high-maintenance folks? Okay, this church is the highest of high-maintenance. And what happened is, some people see it this way. There are some things that Paul is responding to that if you know this about the letter or the letters of First and Second Corinthians make more sense. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, we'll get there later, It seems there was a previous letter of Paul that's been lost. And some believe that that lost letter sort of shows up in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. All right? Interesting, right? What I'm trying to tell you is Paul responds to certain questions or certain problems. We know here in 1 Corinthians 1 that Chloe's household said, Man, we got some problems. What do we do? And their deal was all these people in these different areas are following these different guys. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe, news of these three guys comes to Paul. News of Stephanus and Fortunus and Acacius or something like that. They ask some questions. Then Paul writes this letter, and he has Timothy deliver it, some believe, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. And there's sometime in here, there's a personal visit by Paul, but we don't really know exactly when he did that because he refers to coming to Greece a third time. But if he came a third time, that means he had to come a second time. But we can't really find when he did it in in and throughout the Bible. And then there's this thing called a severe letter. You might be able to see it in 2 Corinthians 2, 4 and and other places, and I'll just leave that for now. And, And actually, in Acts 20, it says, just this little snippet, that Paul stayed after Acts 18 now. Paul stayed in Greece uh for three months, three months. So what I'm trying to tell you is, this letter isn't written in a vacuum. This isn't a treatise. This is real problems for real people, and they show up and say, my goodness, there are contentions. Chloe's household has asked us, or sent this to me. Now I say this, verse 12, that each of you says, I am of Paul. Remember? They don't have one building to sit in. They're down the street. They're up in Blonox. How did I remember that? Why did I pick that? I don't know. They're in Robinson. They don't have phones. They can't text. They don't have the internet. They're all strewn throughout. But there's these people who say, no, we only go where Paul's going to teach or the disciples of Paul are teaching. And remember now, who did Paul teach to? The Gentiles. So many say this is the group that taught licentiousness, because what did Paul rail against a lot? He railed against the law, and he spoke about the grace of God, 
And when you find the grace of God, one of the first questions that you always ask, it's always asked, wait a minute, it's the grace of God that saves me? Well, then I'm going to live like hell and ask for forgiveness. That's licentiousness. And many people believe these people who followed Paul were in that camp. By the way, there's some truth in that. Isn't there some truth? Of course you don't snub your nose at the Lord, but he will forgive our sins past, present, future. You get what I'm saying? I'm not saying live in a licentious way. I'm saying there is truth. God forgives our past, present, future sins. Now hold on. Well, wait a minute. There's this guy named Apollos. You can look at about, uh, read about him in, in Acts as well. Apollos was this slick-talking lawyer-like, or orator, He's said to be the intellectual who wanted to philosophize everything, catch it, and to figure things out through human wisdom, Paul. Now, there is some truth to that. The Bible says that we are to be right dividers of the word and to have understanding, right, as much as we can. The Bible says, ask for wisdom. You'll be given it liberally. But see, Apollos and their camp was probably getting away from the wisdom of the Lord and accepting the wisdom of man. That's that camp. And then there is this. I am of Cephas, and that's Peter. Peter spoke to the Jews. And some believe, and many say, that these more are the legalistic types that believed in the, you know, the routines and the rituals, and that was of that camp. Or some say, I am of Christ. Some just say, listen, man, we're non-denominational, and we're cool, and we don't dress up. And some people say that, too. And we have all the answers, right? Paul says, wait a minute, is Christ divided? Which the answer is no. He never answers it, but the, the answer is no. Christ isn't divided. Was Paul crucified for you? Of course Paul wasn't crucified for them or them or them. Jesus was crucified for them. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, listen, Paul's not against baptism. But what he's saying is, and it seems to indicate that in some of these divisions and sects, they were baptizing people and annexing them in to their group and never letting them out. You get it? And Paul says, my goodness, folks, my job was to preach the gospel. Watch this. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. He's not saying baptism's wrong. He's saying when you get weird about it and hold on and divide over it, that's inappropriate. Lest anyone should say that I baptize in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I don't know whether I baptized any other, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And here's how we're to preach it. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Hold on now. Here's the unifying doctrine. You ready? How do we impact a culture? The culture that we've been given. West Elizabeth, a little bit of this area, a little bit of that area, southwestern PA. How do we impact a culture? Well, it's not telling people the wisdom of secular words. It's not giving them secular advice. It's leading them to the cross of Christ. Because here's why. The message of the cross is foolishness, of course, to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, 
It is the power of God. See, I think the modern church doesn't believe this scripture. (laughs) I think we don't believe this very much. Listen, if you're in the camp that's perishing, of course the cross of Christ would be foolishness. But if you're in the camp that's saved, well, that's the power of God. Now, let me just tell you something real quick. You might want to write this down. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. Write this down. Righteousness. We are being saved from the power of sin. Sanctification. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. That's our righteousness. We are being saved for the power, or from the power of sin. That's sanctification. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. That's ultimate redemption. Did you catch that? So what I'm saying is, you don't just get saved on February 18th, 1987, and whoop. You are saved You're being saved. You will be saved. You get it? Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Now, you're looking at me like, all right, I don't get it. For it is written, look at this, 19, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. You can find that in Isaiah chapter 19 and 33. And then God, through Paul, says, well, where is the wise? And where is the scribe? And where is the disputer of this age? For all this wisdom, all this wisdom that the world had, and the world, the world does have some incredible wisdom, man. We sent a guy to a moon, or some people, to, ladies and guys to the moon. Are you kidding me? We put them out to Mars. What? I watched Hidden Figures, and I still don't get how they did that. You ever watch that movie Mars? I watched that, and well, anyway, whatever. We're wise, and yet... For all its wisdom, the world still has never found God. The world never will. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom didn't know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ, crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Remember this. Put this up on your fridge. Everybody put this on your fridge this week. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than the men. Now, what is he talking about? Watch this. This will make, uh, I think, Corinthians come alive for you. What is he talking about? Uh, Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. And to Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Well, let's tackle stumbling block first. Do you know in Deuteronomy, it says that uh, a, a man who was cursed to die was not under the law to be hung on a tree? Do you know that? That's in Deuteronomy, folks. So for the Jews who are growing up, learning the law, and then Jesus comes on the scene, they're looking for a kingdom that will overturn these Roman oppressors with great signs and miracles. Power. 
And here comes Jesus, gentle and lowly. That doesn't mean weak, by the way. And he just walks around in his sandals with these 12 guys, and he camps out, and he hangs out. And when he does something that's kind of supernatural, according to them, he slinks through the crowd and doesn't tell anybody. This can't be the Messiah. We're looking for signs. And we know that he keeps talking about he's going to have to die and rise again. What? And to die on a tree to the Jew. It was sickening. It goes against what their law said. You get it? So when you read this, you go, oh, shoot. Okay, even though they had Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, they missed it. Well, what about Greeks? Well, see, Greeks, remember philosophy was their thing? Here's what they thought about God. They thought God was apathetic. He didn't really care personally about people. In fact, if he did show care or concern over people, it was weakness. He should not be impacted by people at all. And so if God was one who mourned or cried, then somehow, someway, a dastardly human got to God and influenced him. That's what Greeks thought, folks. And so it was an insult then for them to hear that God became a baby, you see, to save men and women from their sins. That would be something that they would reject totally. It would go against everything they thought about the gods. Are you catching it? So when you read this, you go, oh, that makes sense. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. So now, okay, I know you're getting that look. But let's bring it home here a little bit. So the backdrop in Corinth is pride, independence, exalted human knowledge, trying to figure things out on your own, wealth, prosperity, beauty, image, sound familiar, licentiousness, immorality, sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. It's just any U.S. city. city. <laughs> with people in the city who are interested in religious things, but their doctrines are so far out from Christianity that you'll never impact them. And I know you've thought that before. And against that backdrop, Jesus says, I'm going to start a great church there. God's gospel shines the brightest in the darkest areas. For you see, verse 26, you're calling, brother, brethren, that you, not, many, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble were called. You might say, why is that? By the way, there are some rich, wealthy people in the Bible, but not many who we see came to the Lord. But it says, not many wise. Here, here's the description of you if you're a Christian. <laughs> How do you like that? Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. It's got to be this way. Come on, man. You know you say it. You, you know you say it. 
I don't know, maybe you're going into history class. If I went into history class, you know what my temptation would be? I'm going to knock this one out of the park. I'm going to get an A here. I'm great at this. <laughs> if I went into a math class, way different story. I'd be probably praying all the time. But, but see, in life, when we recognize that it's all Jesus and none of us, we don't glory in his presence, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him, but of him, verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's why I went through that exercise earlier. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. No. Listen. Paul's combating all of this, setting up a church. I would probably say, okay, Move out these people, move out this people. Paul says, remind them of who they are. God says, remind them, Paul, of who they are. And then remind them of the resources they have, the grace of God. And then remind them of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here it comes. Watch this. What is righteousness? Remember we said it's being saved from the penalty of sin Redpath says this again. I want you to catch this. You might want to jot it down. The righteousness of God puts a man back into the center of God's will. You've been saved from the penalty of sin, and you've been put back in the center of God's will. The sanctification that God brings to a man, listen to this, makes him grow day by day in the likeness of God. That's, we're being saved from the power of sin, and we're growing into the likeness of God through Jesus Christ, or into the likeness of Christ. Third, the redemption of God one day will lift him faultless into the very presence of God. Redemption means this. You're back put into life for what you were always intended to do, and that's walk with God and talk with God and give him glory, and ultimately, when you meet him, you will be ultimately redeemed. Are you getting that? Now, why am I going through that? Because if you know the words and what they mean, it's hard to have divisions saying our way is better than your way, your way is better than my way, when you go, oh my, all of those things were made possible for us and for them by the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's nothing we did. It's all that he accomplished. You see it? You're saying, man, this seems so philosophical. But listen, if you don't get this, you'll never get that. And I'm pointing to out there. Because when you leave here, somebody's going to tick you off or a problem's going to come or some disappointment's going to happen or you're going to have a victory or whatever. And, and Paul's saying... If you know these things, the wisdom of God is delivered to us in righteousness and sanctification and redemption in the person and work of Jesus. You're going to be able to navigate life without the defilement. You won't love the world and the things of the world. The love of the Father will be in you, and you'll be out in the community taking it to the streets Hey, that should be a song too. 70s. Only a few of you are smiling. T 
taking it to the streets as the called out church that's alive, not dead. So that if your church, this building or our meeting place uprooted and left, the community would feel it. Well, that leads me to this. <laughs> As we pray here. I don't know if you know this, but we have a community day here. We didn't do it last year, but we're going to do it this year. About, I don't know, six or seven years ago, we started it in that ball field, and it was about 40 degrees, maybe 35 degrees, rainy and cold, and about four people came. And then we just kept doing it, and one year, no lie, we had 400 people here from the valley. And we just got to share with people and pray with them and just fellowship with them. It was awesome. Last couple years that we did it, it was real rainy down the ball field, so we just did it out in the street. And I think they're still contemplating where to do it, probably do it in the street here. And here's why I'm telling you that. You have an opportunity, if you don't know what to do, to serve there. Come make food. Come serve food. Come play your instrument and sing worship songs. Come here and sit down at a table and talk to people. In other words, take the gospel to the streets. I don't even know when it is, to be honest with you, but she knows. Our first week, first Saturday in October, and she's who to see, Rachel, and uh, you can sign up if you want to help. Ooh, October 2nd. But you're going to go to work tomorrow, maybe. You're going to go to school tomorrow. You're going to do lots of things. You're going to have the kids at home tomorrow. I just want you to remember something. You and I and we. <laughs> we're called out there. It never stops. You don't just stop because you go to work and you're not in a building. You just don't stop because you go to the athletic field. You just don't stop because a circumstance is bad. No, because this very life of Christ pulses in and out of us. Let's give it to the world. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thanks so much for today and for this word and uh, this doctrine that's so, or this letter, sorry, that's so relevant to today and obviously back then. We just pray, Lord, that you would remind us of who we are today when we're frustrated, today when we're impatient. Lord, help us to walk in the Spirit so that your life, or walk and yield to the Spirit, so that your life and love and patience and kindness and self-control and long-suffering comes flowing out of us to people who need to hear the gospel. Lord, why would you put a church in this dark, evil place in Corinth to show us that your gospel is power and has all the answers? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.